I am going to continue the lengthy sermon I started a couple of weeks ago. And it's going to be great. Okay. Um, Let's read the text first. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of his brother or sister. The Lord's, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject human beings, but God the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So, sanctification is just a Latinized word for the word that we bring in English, holiness, which comes from a Greek word, hagios, which sounds a little like holy in English, which means to purely set apart something for a particular purpose and to use it for that purpose. Does that make sense? Now, the main example of what it looks like to be holy in the negative in this passage is specifically related to sexual immorality, right? For the first 10 years or so of my ministry, I worked almost entirely with younger people, high school and college students. And, you know, they're notoriously just filled with hormones. And so this whole sexual question is a big one for them. And Jesus is not particularly flexible on sexual morality. I mean, the Christian sexual ethic is unmitigated monogamy or unmitigated chastity. That's it. Either you refrain from all forms of sexual intercourse, or you are singularly united to one person comprehensively in a lifelong union. That's it, man. There are no other options, okay? Which is disturbing. And so, you know, most of the time, young people, as with everybody, they're totally cool with the big ones. Like, obviously, non-consensual sex is bad, and probably not with animals and some other things like that. But like, what, but the, like, what about just like fornication? Just like, why can't I have sex with somebody I like? What's the big deal? Why is God—people people would ask me questions like this. Why is God so obsessed with sexual morality, right? Which is a weird question, right? If you, if you actually read the Bible, God getting started and explaining sexuality, here's, what, here's how restrictive he was. He made a naked woman for a naked man in a romantic setting and said, be fruitful and multiply. Does that sound terrible to you, right? It wasn't until after the fall and the entrance of sexual trespass and exploitation, which happened immediately and across all areas of human life between both men and women, that God came in when he created a people for himself and gave very specific dictates about how we should utilize our sexuality and set up this basic set of obligations. Now, it's really easy to mistake in this passage that the Apostle Paul thinks the entirety of holiness is sexual morality. It's not. You would know that from reading the rest of his writings. Just the rest of 1 Thessalonians, you would know that, right? So why does it seem like he says, it's God's will for you to be sanctified, therefore you should abstain from sexual immorality? Like that's full stop, it seems like, right? Because he spends the next few verses just talking about sexual immorality without really describing it, right? 
there's a couple of reasons. Obviously, one is, is obviously a lot of us emotionally connect with the concept of purity in relationship to sexuality metaphorically better than in most other sins. Right? If you get into a rage and you're like angry with somebody and you really mistreat them and somebody's like, that was really impure of you. People are like, that's a weird metaphor. Right? But if you sleep with some guy who abandons you, even secular women who have no Christian— con- Right? They'll, they'll say things like, in, in actual psychological research, they will reply in, in surveys. I feel, I felt dirty. I felt disgusting. Like, like, there's something about the way we interact with sexuality where we sort of get that, even if we don't believe in God at all, right? But, but more importantly than that, one of the biggest themes of First Thessalonians is love, right? It's love. And we think that if you like somebody or you love them, then if they're the opposite sex and you, or if you're attracted to them for any reason, that that would be how you would express it. And what the apostle says is it's exactly the opposite. Sexual immorality in all forms is a form of hatred. It bears the three inherent problems of all sin that has to be rejected in order for us to be sanctified, which is its impurity, its rejection of sacredness, and its offense to God himself. It's slavery— that we lose ourselves in becoming ciphers and thralls to our own passions, and we lose the functionality of the image of God in our own human being. And third, it's an injustice. It doesn't give other people their due as image bearers in the world. And that's not just true of sexual immorality. It's true of all sins. And sexual immorality is a really good example of that, right? So last week I said that God— demands our sanctification, he defines our sanctification, and he directs it. So this week I'm going to talk about defines. And so it's one thing to say God demands sanctification. Now that would be fine if he didn't define it at all, right? If God was like, I want you to be holy, I'm not going to say anything about holy, you make up what it means. We'd be like, fine. Who has trouble living up to something they designed themselves, right? Well, sometimes we do, but The problem is is that all through Scripture, God intently and intensely and very clearly defines what he means by things. And in this passage, he really clearly defines what he means by sanctification. And he defines it through his exceedingly high demands, it seems like, in relationship to sexual morality. Right? So let's go—so the way I want to structure this is I want to go through how he shows that there's these three issues with every sin— and that they're inherent in the thing itself. And it's the, and the reason why we think the thing isn't a sin or isn't a big deal or we wonder why God's so focused on it is because we do not see how these three things are operating in the sin itself. And this is one of the reasons why we struggle a lot with sexual immorality is we don't see these three things operating. And so we go, what's the big deal? Why is God upset about this? We don't see it as an impurity, a loss of self-mastery, and an act of fundamental injustice. If we saw those things with clarity— we, at least if we fell into the sin through infirmity, we would at least reproach ourselves for it rightly. Right? So the first is—sorry, I have to skip a couple here. That God defines holiness as purity. God defines holiness as purity. Now the word holiness, hagios, in the Greek word group and so on, as it comes out of the Old Testament, just means purity. It's just, I mean, it's just what the word means. It means purity— specifically cleanse for something. So um, remember, God spends a lot more time defining the concept of holy in the Old Testament than the idea of love. He introduces love 
under the concept of holiness. Because what he knows is if he just tells people to love each other, they'll redefine love however they want to, and then they'll just do whatever they want to. He has to really narrowly define holiness first, and then say that he is full of holy love. Does that make sense? And then he can say to us, what I want for you with your neighbor and for others is that you have a holy love. Does that make sense? Now, the other reason to recognize that one of the main operative concepts is purity is because when you get to verse 7, holy is held opposite of impure, right? So verse 7 says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So he's intentionally setting the two off against each other. And in Leviticus, for example, when he's talking through all these concepts of cleansing, one of the things he commands to the Israelites twice in just a couple of chapters, he says, you must distinguish between holy and unholy, pure and impure. God said that it was fundamental to their relationship with him to understand everything about his character is actually the capacity of, and I mean this in the most general sense, discrimination, differentiation, the ability to tell two things apart that you have the capacity to tell them apart, right? My wife won't like this illustration, but we were in, uh, in Louisville with the, the Kutzinger. Some of you know them. They moved down to Louisville. And um, Seth got some whiskeys for us to taste while we were down there. And to me, they, they all just hurt. Like, I have a geographic tongue. I literally have cracks in my tongue. And like, all liquor just—it's just pain. And I'm like, oh, that was a little less painful than the last one, right? And like, Seth and Alexia are just way more sophisticated than that. And they're like, oh, that's, a, that's really peaty and smoky. That's a really interesting blah, 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 blah. I'm like— who are you people, right? Like, they, th- their capacity for distinction and differentiation, discriminating between two things, they're like, I, I don't even care about, is, is actually impressive, frankly. And what, one of the things God says is fundamental to human being is not just generalization, the ability to say what things are like each other, but differentiation, the ability to know what's different from each other. And actually, in educational theory, that's fundamental to all learning. If you can't say how something is like some things and not like other things, you don't understand the thing. So if, if in the use of our sexuality or any area of our life, we can't say what generally is good about it and what differentiality is bad to do with it, we don't understand it. And I found that to talk to, talk to people whose, whose minds aren't formed in Christ and ordered by something like scriptural revelation, views about what can go wrong with sexuality is a very vague realm of human knowledge when it should be a profound one. So one way to say it is sanctification is the pursuit— let me see if we can find this. Sanctification is the pursuit of consecrated purity, right? Consecrated purity. Why do I say that? The verse says, each of you should learn to control his— okay, so in your text it says, learn to control his own body, and then there's a footnote, and it says, or his wife, or take a wife. You're like, how could it mean both of those, right? And, and the reason is, is because the word in the Greek text is the word for vessel. So the word can mean your body. It, it could be a reference to the male organ. Or in 1 Peter, the, women, the wives are referred to as the weaker vessel. It's extremely unlikely it's a reference to a wife. What it means is you're sailing the ship of your own body, Right? and you're at the rudder, and you need to learn to control your vessel. It's a metaphor. Does that make sense? So he says, you need to make sure you can do it in a way that is honorable and holy. That is pure, 
But then what does honorable mean, right? Like, you kind of know what being honored means. Somebody like says, hey, great job. But it's usually not when you like made a lot of money or something like that. They're like, yeah, the money's good enough. You, you, we don't need— Like, it's usually when you do something that there is no temporal reward for. That is, that you've lived your life, no matter what the cost or sacrifice, in direct relationship to something that is abstract. Like, it's not material. Like, you can't put your hands on it. Usually it's a value, right? So we honor soldiers who fight on our behalf and deliver to us liberty, right? What is liberty? Can you, can you make liberty? No, liberty is an abstract object. It's a, it's a concept that when believed in and died for creates a realm of experience that we can enjoy, right? It, it's built into this idea that there, there are some things that matter that you can't touch, that can't be verified by secular means, right? One of the very difficult things about living in a secular time is that the purpose of secularity is to dispel superstition, right? So that if I, if I throw this up in the air, I don't say, little elves made it go up and come down. Like, I recognize that there are laws of gravity and things like that that make these things happen. And I shouldn't substitute for what can be known scientifically, that which is superstitious in nature so that I can see the world as it really is. But there are some things. The problem with that is, is that it's a fire that burns too much. Without, without being careful intellectually and morally and emotionally and spiritually, the fire of secularity that burns away superstition also burns away the sacred. All of it. So that we think we see through everything. So, the problem is, is that it, it proves too much. Because we all believe in some abstract objects, even if we're atheists. We believe in concepts like justice, and that children are invaluable, and that there are some things that should not be done. Right? And it's easy to speak of them and act in ways that cannot be stood upon. But you can— even people who have no categories for them can still feel them. If you find out a child has been violated, there's something that rises up in you like, that person should be cut into pieces. Right? And that's the right feeling. Why is it the right feeling? Why? Why is that any more substantial than somebody violating their lawn? And the answer is rationality can't save you. There has to be something else that truly exists, that is immaterial, that makes the thing matter, that makes it mean something, have a certain significance, have a certain involubility, that it is a tragedy and a horror that the thing should be sinned against. What is that? Right? And it is—we we used to call it that which is sacred. That which is sacred. And that which is sacred— has to be held invaluable. It has to be consecrated in purity because it can't be violated. Right? And what is that? You see, if you don't know what that is, <laughs> how can you keep from violating it? And how can you value it? And how can you discover it? It's not in the realm of the secular. The secular is a great and wide realm that gives us many gifts of beautiful things. It is the means of knowing nature itself. It's incredible. But it is limited, friends. It is its own domain, its own way of knowing, and it can't know everything. And some of the things it can't know must be known. 
I know that for some people, when they hear purity talked about in the church, um, because of your past experiences, you can hear that very negatively. I know that, okay? Like, I, like I've seen the guy, the, you know, who has like clearly intemperate anger, gluttony, envy of others, pride operative in his life, sees a woman walk into the church whose neckline's a little low and be like, immodesty! You know, where's the purity around here? And you just, like, it, I, I know that there are, especially women, who have had experiences in Christianity where it seems like, you know, your neckline or like whether or not you can make yourself sufficiently unattractive, right? Even though God has made you attractive. Like, like that this is what purity is. And it's not. That's not what purity is. Purity has to do with the singularity of the heart given over to its true purpose comprehensively. That's what purity is. The category of salvation and damnation in the Bible related to purity is purity of heart. Who can stand before the mountain of the Lord? He who is pure of heart. In Psalm 73, when David's faith is failing because he sees wicked people prospering and he sees himself suffering, the first line is, have I in vain kept my heart pure? That is, the whole purpose of my spiritual life, everything I've been doing before God, all of my faith has been given to the pursuit of being pure in heart. Loving God alone, loving what he loves, and living out of those loves justly towards my neighbors. In self-mastery, I've given my whole life to that. Is it all for nothing? It's all worthless. Does any of it matter? Because I see the wicked prospering. And then when he gets to the end— he goes back to the idea of purity of heart. He says, no, it wasn't. It wasn't bad because it's everything. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, that's convenient because the greatest desire of the pure in heart is to see God. And so it's important to recognize that when God desires us to comport ourselves in a way that is holy and honorable. That is, we give ourselves to a consecrated purity. It doesn't just mean a shallow modesty. It means a comprehensive giving of ourselves to a purity of heart toward God in all things so that there are no competing loves and that every love that we have either falls under the love of God or is banished from competition with it. So my love for my wife must hold her in a way that is in comportment with my love for God. I, I have to—if I increase in my love for her, it has to increase in relation with my love for God. That what I love about God, I find in and nurture in her. I, my love for her is based on his categories and priorities. I love her in holiness as I love God in holiness so that my love for God can grow in simultaneously and in in relationship, my love for her can grow. If I love her like an idol and wish to have her and hold her and use her and enjoy her in a way that is different from how I'm supposed to love God, she I make her a rival and she becomes the destruction of my loves. Every love must submit to purity of heart. It must come either in submission to and in comportment to our love of God or it must be banished as a rival. That is what purity means. Pursue that, and you'll achieve sexual, sexual morality. You'll achieve sexual purity. 
or in your infirmities as you seek it, God will be pleased with you as you make war to that end, even when you fail. Okay, we've got to keep moving here. Secondly is that God defines holiness as self-mastery. Self-mastery, right? Holiness includes being able to ordain your spiritual emotions, not be dragged around by them. Either as a human being, you will grow in maturity and out of reason and spiritual love in the will of God be able to ordain your spiritual emotions, or you will be dragged around by your cravings and your passions. Because God made you for what? He made you for joy, right? He made you for joy, for everlasting joy. So he made you to be a person who experiences and marvels in and enjoys and is filled with emotion. Brimming with the beauty of pleasure in the heart. Even in difficult times and circumstances to find things that are so easy to please you. Right? He made you for joy. And in doing so, he made you full of emotional capacity. That hurts can shut down and that we can make serve other things. And that can be unordained, running around by their own will, inordinate and broken, seeking little things that will get us short-term pleasures, sucking from the dirt of the earth the things that we think will make us feel better, becoming thrall to our passions and ciphers, sucking the life and blood out of everybody else so that we can be happy for a time. Because we're so low that only the animalistic pleasures can please us. Or— in being formed in Christ and in the mind of Christ, and in seeing the full comprehensiveness of human being and society and love and being and sharing with other people, that we become not just aesthetic, be, sensual beings and then aesthetic beings, but moral beings and spiritual beings. And these all work comprehensively so that even our animalistic loves, we enjoy our food with good friends, speaking good truths to them and enjoying it in Christ's name out of thankfulness. So that everything we do, even the lowest thing, is in comprehensive unity to our fullness and therefore evoking the fullest amount of pleasure and joy and meaning. I remember, this is, I remember so tragically reading years ago. I was, I was in some doctor's office, and I was reading a magazine, one of those magazines that I would be embarrassed if I owned, and there was this, like, advice section, right? And this 24-year-old girl from, like, New York City had written in and said, I've been dating this guy for two months. We've been having sex for all of that. He wants to do some really weird things. Is this just part of having an exciting sexual life in a modern relationship? And I wanted to—and th- of course, the writer was like, well, you know, you got to be true to yourself. But idiocy. I wanted to throw the magazine across the room. I was like, no, it's because you're so shallow. Of course, you have to hurt yourself or do something to awaken another part of your nervous system because that's all there is to you. If you would be a whole human being and respect each other deeply and their dreams and like your passions and what you want to live on behalf of and you have a moral center and you love God and you're, you're just a bigger thing and the spheres of that being come together to delight in such a way, you will be pleased with simple things, with intimacy, with adoration, with comfort, with joy with the transfiguration of the other in the act itself, 
that they become like gods to you in your mind and you're bonded to them more deeply than you ever thought. In the simplest actions, when we become slaves to our desires and our cravings, it damns us in a twisted kind of way. It empties us out of all of our capacity. It, it twists further the image of God and mars us in a way that is hard to recover from. You have to become whole in Christ. You have to seek a deeper sanctification. You have to make war with your wounds that are holding you back from opening the floodgates of emotion towards God and being pure at heart. We have to do so in the words of Paul more and more. Right? And lastly, I, I just, I want to, I got to keep going, sorry. I, I, I ran through some of this stuff, and it was just hours and hours of material. Um, so Q&A, pod, please listen to the podcast. Um, the last, and we can't go be, without this, is that God defines holiness as acting in justice. God defines holiness as acting in justice, right? It says in verse 6, In this matter, none of you should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins as we've already told you and warned you. Now, in the new NIV, it says brothers and sisters because they want to make the translation as gender nonspecific as possible so that women feel like they're in every passage, and in some ways that's laudable. In this passage, though, it takes something away because what the text says is brother, and the assumption is that it's referring to a man, and the assumption is that the relationship is not homosexual. That is, that and it's not sexist in the sense that the woman doesn't matter. So if you have an affair with a woman who belongs to another man, you're, you're not offending her, you're just offending him. That's not the idea. The idea is, is that the realm or concentric circles of offense and injustice are wider than you think. I'm, it's, it's very hard to get people to understand that if, you know, you're, you're not married, they're not married, you want to have sex, that that's an injustice. It is an injustice. It's always an injustice. And not just before God as an impurity, and not just as a sin against yourself in degradation, which is just both of those things also. It is also a third thing. It is an injustice, right? That's what First Corinthians says. One of the problems of sexual sin is you sin against yourself and somebody else, right? But you're doing it out in other concentric circles. I remember sitting down with a girl who had just accepted Christ in a youth group. She was really pretty, and the sleaziest, handsomest guy in the youth group wanted to do things with her. And she came and asked me about it, which I thought was fantastic. She's like, what should I do? Because I think it would be fun. I mean, she accepted Jesus like that week. And I, I said, okay, let's sit down and do something. Because she had been in the youth group for a couple of months. She just had just become a Christian. I said, okay, write his name and write your name and circle them both. Draw a line between them. Okay, so that's you two doing whatever things you're going to do. Okay, now, who's going to find out about it? She's like, well, probably everyone. It's high school, right? Okay, so— um, Write a bunch of them in there. So how many, how many women has he gotten together with and tossed aside that you know of? She's like, well, she named like five girls. Okay, so mark all those five girls, write all their names. How do you think they're going to feel when they find out about this? Well, they're going to feel hurt. Yeah, they are. You're right. So, right, hurt by all of them. And then, and we just, now, who are the next girls he's going to go to after he's done with you? And who are going to think that this is normal, that you just do this kind of thing, so that he can have them and toss them aside too? Let's write some of their names down. Let's write down some of the freshman guys that think this guy is amazing because he can do this. And how it's going to degrade their view of women and their understanding about how women should be treated and their misunderstanding of masculinity. Let's write their names down. So we did this for about 30 minutes. Had about 85 people affected one way or another by one act of sexual immorality that wasn't even going to be sex. There, in Leviticus 18, there's all kinds of things forbidden. 
and there's a lot of close relationships that everybody thinks that they're incest relationships. They're not. It forbids, like, if you marry a woman and you divorce her and you want to marry her sister, you're not allowed to do that. Well, no, that's not— Anyway, a number of them are just close relationships, but they're not incestuous relationships. Well, why not? It's just too close. It screws everything up socially. Just don't marry that person or don't be with that person. It's bad for everyone. And you should care about that. Why? Because it's an injustice because you're tearing apart the social fabric of holiness and wholeness between people living vibrantly for the welfare and happiness of all mankind. Right? That—now think about this. Sex—you're like, well, Nick, you're just taking it too seriously. Why can't sex just be fun? Because it never actually just is. Right? The problem with our sexuality—and please come to the sexuality conference where you'll learn more about this. The problem with our sexuality is, is that it, it's ubiquitous and it's comprehensive. It's in every part of you and affects every part of you. Right? So I, Jill went and got batteries for me this morning, and she just did a quirky thing, and Kent was in my office, and I was like, she did that just like a woman. He's like, be careful. She's going to come and punch you just like a woman. Right? And, but it was, it was kind of funny because, like, her femininity kind of came across in how she got me batteries. You know what I mean? My masculinity hopefully comes across when I, when I park or I say hi to somebody. Like, your sexuality is in every part of how you do everything. The idea that you can just separate it out in sex acts is just not real. It affects everything. In fact, um, there's research, some research that's been done among high testosterone women who are college athletes who have no moral compunction about the hookup culture. And they were surveyed about how well they liked the hookup culture, specifically about how they felt about it. So these are the women who like, they think it's fine. They're fully ideologically liberated as feminists. They're high testosterone women, so they're highly competitive anyway. If you lose, it's your fault. You know what I mean? And like, they're tough ladies. If there's any women that would be okay with the hookup thing, it would be them. Man, it was like 85% of them hated it. They were like, it's so—like, it, I feel dirty. I feel used. I feel stupid. I feel tossed aside. I feel like a prostitute. I feel—right? Then they'd ask, do you think it's wrong? No, it's not wrong. No, it is wrong! It's really wrong! Almost no sexual relationship is between fundamental equals if it ends. I mean, you've been—haven't you been in a breakup where you wanted the relationship to continue, just the other person didn't? Or vice versa? The other person's heartbroken. They feel rejected. They feel like they're less than you. It's—these are terrible things. And sexuality by itself is fundamentally comprehensive. It's not just fluid discharges. The same hormones that awaken your parts are the same ones that flood your brain with emotions designed to psychologically weld you together with that other person. Your relationship can never be the same. And should it be? Just because you use some kind of chemical or device to break up the comprehensiveness of that union with, with fertility, for example, doesn't make it not a comprehensive union. And is it any wonder, therefore, that God— who recognizes the basic fact of the comprehensiveness of sexuality would demand that it only be done within a comprehensive union. You see, our prejudice against marriage and only engaging sexual morality within marriage is not totally our misunderstanding that marriage is comprehensive. It's the lie that we believe that sex isn't comprehensive. Sex is the only act 
that can fulfill the complete comprehensiveness of marriage. And it always does, which is why it must be bound to it. Well, there's probably a hundred other reasons, too, related to purity and self-mastery and so on. Now, you may not feel very personally encouraged by this. My goal so far was not to personally encourage you, but to bring clarity. Without moral clarity, we cannot get anywhere. So if your feelings are hurt because you're like, I have not done this very well, um, that's not the point. The point is not to judge. The point is to have a true north. The point is to know the heart of God. The point is to know what having a pure heart would even be. The point is to free us from the shackles of the lies that we believed in. To see with clarity the will of God that it's good, pleasing, and perfect. And to know the nobility and honorability of pursuing it. Recognizing that we can become more than we've ever been yet. That we can live in a beautiful purity towards God and we can live in real justice towards our neighbors. That's hopeful, no matter how bad we've been. And God can bring all kinds of healings in the things that we've done wrong. Right? But when you come to the point of it, you can easily say, okay, God demands our sanctification and God defines it. <laughs> so what do, I do, what do I do now? Right? Am I left to just be self-righteous to people who I've been better than or resent God for being so morally serious? Or do I just feel in despair? Right? Proverbs 28 to 12 says this. When a king sits on his throne to judge, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. There's no escaping him. Right? Who can say, I have kept my heart pure. I am clean without sin. The answer is, no one. Different weights and different measures, the Lord detests them both. Good luck with saving yourself by being hypocritical and feeling better than other people. So you'll find at the end of the day that you are just using different moral weights. Verse 11, even a child is known by his actions, whether his conduct is pure and right. You think your action is hidden? You think your heart is hidden? It's not. Verse 12, ears that hear and eyes that see, it is the Lord that made them both. You think you see things? You think you hear things? He sees and hears and knows everything. There is only one person who has ever been able to say, I have kept my heart pure. I am clean without sin. Jesus the Christ. He's the only one. He's the only one who's been fully sexually moral. He's the only one who's been fully sanctified. He's the only one that nobody had to say to him, do this more and more, Jesus. He's the only one that didn't have to be told. Don't you see this is about purity? This is about you being enslaved? And this is about justice? He was the one that told us that. And yet he was also the one that died for us in our failures of it. He is the one who can make it possible that you cannot be wrecked by your inability to live up to this or failure in the past, and yet still inspired to the pursuit of it. Isn't that what you need? Isn't that what, that's what I need? It's what, I think it's what everybody needs. To not be wrecked by your failures, to receive a certain kind of forgiveness and encouragement, and then also for it not to take away the standard at all, but to raise a beautiful path to us and to call us into it. So that in your failures, you haven't lost any of your calling to nobility. To bear fully and beautifully the image of God. Let me read one verse, couple, let me read two verses for you. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says this. It is because of him, that is God the Father, that you are in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the one who has become for us 
wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. The only way to really pursue it is to know that Christ is in you, that you have received him and accepted him and been forgiven by him. And in you, he is already being in the person of his spirit. Your righteousness, your forgiveness, your, that you've been set right with God, that he is already inside of you being your holiness until you are then reformed in it around him. And also, your ultimate redemption. That he'll bring to completion what he started. So our work of gracious striving, I gave you Romans 6, 13 last week. I hope that you wrote that down and you've been thinking about it. So let me add Romans 12, 1. This is how we graciously strive. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. God, as we um, take some time to sing to you, we pray that you'd use it as a mechanism of narrowing our loves to a pure and focused and unrivaled love in you. And that all of our other loves would either be subsumed under you with you honoring them and forming them, or banished as rivals. And that in so doing, we would feel welling up a deeper maturity, a deeper sense of ourselves, a deeper connection with the image of God in us that is making us more ourselves through your work so that we can achieve a kind of mastery that we're meant to have. That as you ordain creation, we're meant to ordain our own personality and ordain our own actions and to be in control of them. And that in doing so, we could live justly in your eyes and towards our neighbors. Holy Spirit, please work in us as we sing, as we pray, as we think, as we meditate, and as we choose. We pray in Jesus' name.